Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. So, Dr. Miller, thanks so much for being here. Uh, it's a real honor to have you know someone of, of your caliber, quite honestly, on, on Medicus. It's a, it's, a, it's a great pleasure, so thank you. And we would just like to start off with about your background because, you know, you have somewhat of a non-traditional route to medicine from what you told, you know, me in the past and, and Josh as well. So would you be able to kind of expand on that a little bit and just kind of how you got to where you, where you are now? Okay. Well, I grew up in a family of six girls and I'm the oldest and my parents weren't Neanderthal at all, um, but they just didn't see, they just originally didn't see like girls going to college. So I can remember even in high school, my mom saying, I'd rather you take typing than physics, which is something I'd signed up for because you might need those skills later. Turned out she was right. Like most things with mom, I probably type a heck of a lot more than I worry about physics. Uh, So there she goes, she's right. I had told my parents, I had had an experience when I was in high school where somebody had gotten in a car accident right in front of our house And my dad, who was like the most competent person I know, was rather speechless. It happened at two in the morning. My dad and I both ran out of the house and I saw the paramedics come and they knew exactly what to do. And I got to hold the IV. At the time, I thought they were doctors. You know how you don't know. And I thought, oh, I want to do that. Those people really know what they're doing. So um, I had told my parents I wanted to go to medical school and that just didn't at all resonate with them. And so they loaned me $2,500 and I went to nursing school. And I did become an RN. I went to Barnes School of Nursing um, in St. Louis. That's where I grew up and uh, became an ICU nurse. And during that time, I realized that that probably wasn't the best thing for me. Although I loved medicine, I was a little mouthy and found that I, you know, I was in trouble a lot for speaking up. And I started uh, taking classes to get my college degree because what I had was what's called a, it wasn't even an associate, so it's just a diploma. And I started taking classes at the, school in, at the School of Engineering. I had a friend of mine who was an engineer, and she was telling me engineers made $37,000 a year, which at that time seemed like a lot of money. So I started taking classes in engineering. And I used my nursing degree to support myself through engineering school. I got a bachelor's in mechanical engineering. And then when I started looking at things to do, um, I thought I'll go to graduate school. And I actually got a scholarship to Wash U in St. Louis to study biomedical engineering. That's where I got my master's in was fluid dynamics and biomedical engineering. And then um, at that time, I, you know, couldn't figure out what to do with it. And my thesis was on mathematically modeling red cell membranes. And I I liked that, but I I missed being around patients. I was still working as a nurse to support myself. And I really resonated with medicine. I realized I really liked being with people. So I went to work for Procter & Gamble. They're a manufacturing company. You know, notice them as a product company, but they also manufacture most of their products. And so I went to work as a quality engineer for Tide, which was a really exciting uh, time in my life. I, for six years, did that work. But I realized um, by the time I'd hit like 33, I realized that I missed medicine. Uh, When I met people that I thought were outstanding, I would think to myself privately, boy, they'd make such a great doctor. I still held it in high esteem. And so at 34, I sent myself to medical school. I'd saved enough money and took the MCAT and went to medical school. And, uh, you know, only I had no insight, you know, how like all of you talk to each other. I had no insight about medical school. I applied to two schools, the only two schools in St. Louis, WashU and St. Louis University. 
interview to both and St. Louis University, I had told I was in the middle of a $60 million project and told them that if I was going to leave, I needed to know soon because I love this company and I would uh, delay a year if I didn't know soon enough because I was in the middle of a big project. And they called me the next day. It was the day after they, I interviewed on Wednesday. They called me Thursday morning. It was Thanksgiving and told me we're accepting you. And that's it. I went to medical school then. So, wow. so you really yeah. put the pressure on them, huh? Yeah, well, I didn't know that that was really an arrogant thing to do. (laughs) I was just being honest about my life. And, uh, you know, it was pretty powerful. Later, later I realized how gracious they were, really gracious, you know, to do that. Yeah. And now transitioning, you know, you went through medical school and you kind of had this idea, you know, you wanted to be a, a doctor then, obviously, committing to medical school. How have um, or how, how did you get the intention or, or desire to maybe go to, to urology and kind of pursue the, the urogynecology, you know, female pelvic reconstructive surgery yeah. um, route? Sure. Well, that, that's a great question. You know, during uh, one of the things that happened to me that I didn't say at Procter & Gamble was I really got promoted a lot. I was promoted three times in six years. And I had really advanced um, pretty quickly. I was running a $20 million business when I left, Cascade the Dishwashing Detergent. They make all of it for the US and Canada and St. Louis. And so they had put a lot of money into me and uh, responsibility. And I knew that I had a knack for uh, being in leadership. So I was afraid that if I got into medicine, I would work my way out of medicine (laughs) and get into leadership. I know that sounds again, arrogant kind of, but I had this insight that I would just start managing people. And managing people is what I really don't like. I like doing the work. I can remember even when I was at Procter & Gamble, uh, I would hold on to assignments that were pro- you know, like problems, engineering problems, because I like that. And when I envisioned myself as a doctor, I envisioned doing the work. So one thing that became clear to me was that if I went into internal medicine, and even at the time I was thinking ER, that I would end up uh, signing up for leadership positions and work my way out of it. So that didn't make sense. I also always loved surgery and I kept thinking, what's the thing that at the end of all this will really be different? And to me, that was surgery. You know, seeing myself as a surgeon, um, acquiring those skills and that decision-making and also being able to um, kind of fix a problem. I know more about that now, by the way. You don't really fix a problem. But at the time, I was naive and uh, thought that, that, you know, it would be like one and done, and then I'd move on to the next person. So uh, surgery was really compelling to me. Um, and I loved ENT. I loved the subspecialties. And I, you know, like most people, I met someone I admired. They trusted in me, and I did a little research with them. They became an advocate. And um, at the end, I chose urology over ENT. Those were the two I was really looking at. And um, my mentor really pushed me to come to Loyola. I had applied to many programs, mostly on the West Coast, where I envisioned myself living. And he said, I had done a medical student talk in New Orleans, and I had to uh, give a a presentation. And um, I met Dave Hatch, who at the time was a pediatric urologist. That's what I thought I would do. And he said, why don't you come to Loyola? And I didn't know how to say no. You know, somebody asked me. So I said, well, I guess I'll add it to my interview schedule. And then I came, interviewed, and it was really impressive to me. And this is where I ranked my number one spot. And, and then I was fortunate enough to match. 
And in my urology, that was the first time that anywhere in the country, uh, they had matched at a urology program, three women. So I had gone from this experience of being with six, you know, five sisters, and now I'm in this urology program where I really love working with men, and now I'm in with two other women. So it was really wild. It was wild for the department. They had never done that before. You know, for my colleagues, every, and everyone was wonderful. Bob Flanagan was the chair at the time, and I had some amazing mentors. While I was doing that, though, I was probably... Um, it was weird. Uh, I can remember um, I went to the first Chicago urologic meeting. That's one of the great things about urology in Chicago is we have our own uh, meeting and all the institutions are there. And I can remember the first time I showed up, you don't get to do it till you're a third year at the time because I did two years of general surgery. And when I showed up, they uh, said to me, well, the vendors are not supposed to go into the meeting. And I said, well, I'm not a vendor. I am actually a resident since there weren't that many women who were residents. And then when I finally got in, I was so unimpressed. Um, everyone kind of looked like dads and lads in their Zanzibar suits. And I was like, oh my God, what am I doing in this place? I'd come from a very progressive business environment to what I thought was a pretty stogie uh, urology kind of thing. And by oh, the sure. end of the day, I actually had bought a pack of cigarettes and I was smoking in the women's lounge with the drug reps, having a much better time. And at that point, I had decided I was going to quit. Um, I was going to go back to Procter & Gamble. They had a, they used doctors to run their businesses and I had started placing calls at Procter & Gamble. What happened though, a couple months later, while I was in the middle of all that and, you know, life happens, Linda Brubaker, who was a really prominent urogynecologist and was actually dean of the medical school at Loyola, she moved from Rush to Loyola. She had made an agreement with Bob Flanagan. There were multiple factors of why that happened. The minute I laid eyes on that woman and heard her talk, I realized that I'd found a mentor, somebody that I wanted to emulate. She had all the things that I really admired. And I had also been doing that throughout my career, even when I was at Procter & Gamble and when I was getting my master's degree, there were people I'd meet who I'd think, I, I, I get that, that I like that. Um, and I went up to her after the first time she gave a talk and introduced myself and said to her, I wanna be trained by you. And she said, well, that is really interesting because although I'm an OB-GYN and my field is an OB-GYN, I've always wanted to train a urologist and I'll train you and you'll be my partner. We had that conversation in a, in a hallway. That's amazing. That turned out to be my reality. Um, and it was not just her. There were two other women who were working with her. Kim Kenton was a fellow. She now runs a program at Loyola at um, Northwestern and she and I worked together for 14 years. And Mary Pat Fitzgerald, who's back in Ireland, a really brilliant minded uh, researcher who was also Dr. Brubaker's partner, those three women uh, deeply influenced me. And so it became obvious within a year that I would do the fellowship with them and then stay as their partner at Loyola if there, if there was space available. And really that's been my career. So besides having a career, a time before this where I had so many different jobs, uh, many things I haven't told you about, summer experiences. I worked uh, with Monsanto and I worked on um, doing something called statistical process control with semiconductors. So I had lots of different business experience that really um, has served me well in, in all of my careers. But it's been interesting to me that I land at Loyola and I haven't left over 22 years, um, you know, so. Absolutely. 
but to the people who listen to your uh, podcast, they're mostly medical students, aren't they? Uh, medical students, residents, uh, physicians, uh, okay. pre-medical students as well, you know, people interested in medicine. So. Do, you, do you mind if I say a couple things that are really important to me? Absolutely. Go for it. Okay. The first one is, I believe with my experience, and it is limited, I mean, it's more than most, but it's limited, there is no field like medicine. Uh, you can redesign yourself and go into so many different directions. Despite the fact that I've stayed in one place all this time, I've made many different career moves and career decisions that have profoundly affected my life. And I, all, I never feel trapped. I always have a sense that I could go off and let's say I, I decided that research, there was something about it that I, I, I was done with that. I really was intrigued by some other thing. I could absolutely morph my career into that. I have never seen that in my life, you know? Mm -hmm. The second thing is, is the great amount of misunderstanding among medical students about what it takes to be a surgeon. This idea that somehow your hand has to be steady <laughs> or that you have to have a certain kind of uh, sensibility is just ludicrous and self-made. And the way that um, the classmates will criticize or decide what other people can do is just ridiculous. It's not true. It's based on nothing. If there's something you want to do, just do it. I promise you there's a program that will be a fit for you. And the last thing is, the other thing that is always um, shocking to me, and I'll just uh, nip right in the bud when someone says to me, is this idea that they're too old to start in surgery. And I'm like, you're out of your freaking mind, okay? I was 41 and I started in surgery and I did a long residency, six years, and a two-year fellowship. And um, everything about it has uh, been great and exactly what I wanted. So this idea that you would invest 10, 12 years in your career and then somehow sell yourself short because you think by the age of 32, you're supposed to be on some other path is a mistake and it's it's not founded on anything that makes sense to me so there you go all my wisdom wrapped up in a <laughs> man that there there's so much that you know such such great pearls there and i think um you know, the key thing that you touched on was mentorship and i cannot emphasize that enough i feel like that's you know kind of how i've gotten to where i've been in my career you know albeit it's very and very short and but um you know having those strong mentors i think really can can bring you you know bring you forward and it sounds like that really you know shifted your direction and, and kind of gave you a lot of purpose um yeah so I and i think a, i think as you've experienced and probably the same for you alec josh and will be for you jesse if it hasn't been already mentorship is a two-way street and while i find a great desire on people's parts to find a mentor, like thinking it just drops from heaven, they don't realize that really it's the mentee that drives that relationship and makes that relationship happen. So people make those uh, connections happen. In regards to that, what would you suggest or what would you uh, tell people who are interested in finding appropriate mentors? Like, what is the strategy? Should they just look for examples where they're just like, I want to be that person? Or should they seek out opportunities or like what should be the general philosophy just in general and how should they prepare themselves in, in regards to having that type of a relationship? Well, I think that early on, the there are relationships that are almost made for you when you get into med school has been my experience. There are some people that you're hooked up with. Those are valuable. Those relationships, even if that's not what you're going to go into, 
um, those relationships really are key. For example, for me, uh, there was a, a infectious disease doctor who m almost all of my true mentor relationships have had an emotional connection. They've not been about the specialty. Mm -hmm. In fact, in the end, that has been the most meaningless to me um, because I, I really want to have a conversation with someone who's going to tell me about their experience. And the only way I'm going to have that is that if I have some sort of connection with them. So typically it's been people I either admired when they gave a lecture um, or somebody that I heard about uh, and got to see their work or I, I was on their service. And afterwards I asked if you could give me feedback about my performance. And by the way, do you mind telling me about yourself? In fact, that's the most interesting conversation to ever, that's the most inter interesting way to start a conversation, whether you're at a bar or whether you're in school. <laughs> um, you know, people like to talk about themselves. We tend to tell our lives in stories. They're a little smoother than our real lives, but they do hold elements of truth. And so I would just ask people, if you don't mind, can I have 10 minutes to just hear about your career? And, what were difficult decisions for you? What were, th what were things that worked out right for you? And what were things you'd do different? And people will always tell you their experience, I think. And so I went to a couple women mentors, uh, women I identified as mentors early on, and uh, they really started me on the track of thinking medicine versus surgery. And the majority of those people were in medicine, they weren't surgeons and they gave me their um, insight about how they made those decisions. Mm -hmm. Did you find with uh, those particular mentors, well, just in general, actually, in regards to like the women mentors, were they supportive in terms of like pushing you towards the surgery or were they not as supportive, I guess? Well, it's funny. I think that um, we all see characteristics in each other's, in each other. I, like if I was going to divide the world into internist, general medicine, and surgeons, there are some clear distinctions for me that may or may not be generalizable. I hope you forgive me for like anything that I'm going to say that just sounds like kind of ridiculous. But in general, surgeons, in general, like internal medicine, you have to be one of those people who always has your mind open. It has to be constantly open. Um, and you have to be willing to challenge yourself. You're almost one of those people who, when it comes to making the decision, you have more anxiety after you've made it that maybe you didn't make the right decision. In general, that's how I see internal medicine. And surgeons I see is they make a decision and they feel relieved once they have a plan. And I'll give you a great example. My partner is, an, is a hospitalist. Of course, we disagree about many ways we see the world. Uh, but I always say to myself, well, if I was an internal medicine doctor and I had decided the day before you had TB and I walked into your room and you weren't acting like TB, I'd be like, what's wrong with you? You're not acting like you have freaking TB. I would never, it would be rare for me to question my diagnosis. I made the diagnosis and I'm on that plan. Uh, that works for surgery where you're halfway through the surgery and you can't be starting to think that maybe I, oh, maybe this isn't what I need to be doing. I, I don't think I've ever had that thought in my life. But it's a really good way to be if you're an internist or somebody who's chronically having to flip through the diagnosis and decide. I know it's simplistic, but it's actually kind of true. And people see that um, in different characteristics. I can kind of tell when I'm in my clinic and I 
am talking with people and asking, what do you think it'll go into? Or what are you leaning towards? And I'll think to myself, oh my God, totally internal medicine, you know, totally. And it's not <laughs> derogatory. It's meant to be like you have an expansive mind. Also, it depends on what you like. Like, for example, I'd learned from my previous experience of being in business. Um, I really like being the expert. I love that. I don't mind that it's so narrow. I don't mind that I say the same thing to people day in and day out. And Alec can tell you, and Josh, you remember my clinic, there can be 40 people. And uh, most med students can have my shtick down in about two weeks of working with me. They pretty much know what I'm going to say and the, you know, some of the analogies I'm going to use because I say the same things all the time. You, surprisingly, it, that doesn't bother me. You know, my, my place of other thinking or creative thinking occurs in my writing or my research. If you're so, when you're um, a surgeon or a specialist, and that's true in general medicine or in surgery, you know a whole lot about a little bit versus if you're somebody who is always liking to think, always liking the challenging problem, you have to know a little bit about a whole lot, but enough to kind of get in the door. And there are people who really get bored with the same repetitive things all the time. And, and you'll have a sense of who you are in that. I really believe that. And your work will be that. Internal medicine doctors do repetitive things, but every week, every day, they see something that they really don't know what's going on. Uh, that would throw me into a quandary. That doesn't, internal medicine people, at least my experience of them, is that they love that. That's the challenge that day. What about when you have challenges in, in the OR? Obviously, like you're a very good surgeon and complications never happen, right? No, they happen. What happens in those situations? Like, how do you remain grounded, kind of reevaluate your decision-making process? Like what kind of goes on in your mind? Well, um, I think part of this is engineering and part of it is my personality. I do a lot of woodworking and I do a lot of, um, you know, like home repair stuff. So if you've ever done home repair enough of it, you start to realize that what you th thought would take an hour is probably seven times that. And you learn to not, to just not get frustrated. You know, you'd, you'd learn not to do something like, um, I think I'll take that faucet apart before the dinner party because that drip is driving me nuts. You know full well, it's very likely that that bathroom is not gonna be usable for about a week. You learn that kind of early on. So um, I feel the same way in surgery. It's very intense and it's all encompassing. To me, it's rather Zen-like how focused I am and how I'm paying attention to anything else. The time pretty much flies and um, I'm doing whatever I need to do at the time. It feels remarkably creative. It's been very rare for me to ever feel despair in the OR. When I have, I, I usually realize it's just low blood sugar. And so if I have a case that I know is going to be six or seven hours, all my fellows and everybody I know knows that, you know, we cut up candy bars, we keep them in our um, scrub pocket, and we have someone give them to the, us if, if we're getting low <laughs> like that. But I've learned that, that when I feel that despair, like, oh my God, is this case ever going to end? Usually I'm like, oh boy, I, you know, it's like I've run a lot of marathons and you feel the same way. Have you ever run a, done like a long distance event or a long cycling event? And you know, when you get in that place, you're like, oh, I'm bonking and I need to do something because otherwise it's a very engaging and interesting and creative process. 
Dr. Miller, you, you mentioned in kind of like your career path and your other interests, you talk a lot about how research is kind of a creative outlet for you. And I, I just want, I mean, I, I have your, your CV pulled up right here. And for all of our, our listeners out there, you know, we could go, I mean, there's at least, you know, I think my CV is long, you know, you have five, six pages. This is, you know, 30, 40 pages worth of, you know, 80 plus publications and, and all those kind of things. Can you take us through how to really excel at research, how you maybe even how you first started getting getting into it, and then what you've learned as an academic, and how do you keep that up in, in your career? Okay, well, um, it's a great question, and it's one that most people think that you have a gift for research. I'll have to tell you a story. So, you know, um, I had said earlier, I went to medical school, I think at 36. So. Once I finished a residency, I was 42. Once I did my fellowship, which actually was a two-year fellowship, I actually did it in a year. It's kind of complicated. My fifth year of urology residency, which is a research year, was my first year of my fellowship. So anyway, at the end of it, I'm 43. So at 43, I'm thinking, well, I probably have a career till I'm 70. So what's really critical is I learned to be a surgeon. I made that clear to everyone, including Dr. Brubaker, a great researcher, who was hiring me and I told her, and I want you to know I'm not gonna do research. So, you know, and she's like, oh, okay. And um, I said, no, no, honestly, I'm not gonna do any research. And she said, that's okay, you know, do, you be you, we'll, we'll take care of the rest, you be you. Well, of course, what she knew full well that was not gonna last for long because what happens is where research is not um, in the beginning, so let me say it this way, um, in surgery, one of the models we have in medicine that's really effective is this idea that you're slowly brought into surgery. Like you today, Alec, doing a kidney transplant, you know, you, you probably didn't throw a stitch, but you saw a lot. You retracted or you were there or people were pointing out anatomy to you. You slowly got introduced into it. And over your career as a urologist through your residency and being a junior attending, you will come to the point where all of a sudden you can do it. I mean, it just is part of your life. That's what six years buys you. And they're not six years of eight-hour days. That's the fallacy. Of course, they're 12-hour days. Because my God, tell me, what four-year or five-year interval in anyone's life did you really learn that much? And who um, can possibly go into a room never held in, holding a knife and come out four or five years later, OB-GYNs, general surgeons, running a team um, in an emergency. So of course these things are excessive, what they take from your life, because you're cramming 20 years of experience into a what's classically a five-year window. And I, I accepted that early on. I knew that's what it would be, and I knew that's what it would take. But slowly you get these skills till you are, you know, in those beautiful models of you're consciously and, you know, you're unconsciously incompetent to you're consciously incompetent to you're um, unconsciously competent and then you're consciously competent. So these wonderful learning models that really apply to surgery. You know, research is no different. This idea, um, if you now took the model of uh, surgery and applied it to how most people are taught about research, this idea that, oh, guess what? I want you to read a few papers and then I'd like you to go do a couple radical prostatectomies and come back and let's talk about it. Well, my God, that's ludicrous. Nobody's gonna let you operate on them. It should be that um, nobody is expected to do research that way. 
that was a philosophy that I really saw in my career. And so much so that it was Linda Brubaker and Kim Kenton who in our group that thought through the STAR um, program. And that's where the STAR program originated from, this idea that you start people into research early so that they get exposed to it and that they can make it a part of their daily life. And when it becomes a part of your daily life, what it, the creative process is that now that you have these tools like surgery, like research, and you're in a clinic where you're talking with patients and you're thinking to my, yourself, you know, this is the 20th time I've seen this today and we still don't know the answer. You know, we don't understand why it is that one surgery works and one surgery doesn't. Shouldn't we know this by now? Those things start really driving your questions. Like for us and our, all of our work on the urinary microbiome, all of that work came from um, years of dealing with women with UTIs and not understanding why can't we cure this or why do some women have negative cultures and still have symptoms? You know, what are all, are there bacteria that we're missing? And uh, that started a whole evolution of questions. And of course, a very big, um, a big part of my research life. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, kind of jumping off of that, is there, uh, you know, you've been through a lot of these projects, RCTs, you know, retrospective reviews, you name it. Is there one publication that you're really proud of or one uh, initiative that you really, um, you know, are, 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 are very proud of, I guess, in terms of, you know, what it brought about um, for the community or, or for your patients even? Yeah, I thank you for asking that. I, that's a wonderful question. Uh, when I did this, when I first started into this work, I really felt that uh, what was unique for me, and part of this came from being a woman uh, urologist, I was one of the first women urologists in Chicago, um, who was also working in the field of OB-GYN. So I could take very common things that were known in urology, bring it into OB-GYN and make a difference. And I could translate also for urologists what was happening in the field of OB-GYN. So I always knew that part of that, part of the banner I was gonna carry was working on that, uh, that ridge and walking it and uh, trying to help people on each side flip over to the other side. So carrying that banner has been really important to me. The other thing that's been really important is treating women with conditions that aren't as well understood. And one of those was uh, ureteral vaginal fistulas. Uh, a fistula is an abnormal connection between two viscera. Well, I shouldn't say, it's not always viscera because you can think of a, a bowel skin fistula um, and that's not a viscera. So, but mm -hmm. in my world, it's mostly vis you know, viscera. Mm -hmm. So between the bowel and the vagina, between the vagina and the bladder, or between the ureter, a missed ureteral injury, and now a woman develops a fistula. Well, um, those, those things classically can't be treated by just putting in a Foley catheter. And yet, um, it, they can, ureteral vaginal fistulas in the literature of old, people would just do a stent instead of doing a reimplant. And so we published a series of our 13 years of experience treating women conservatively. That was really important to me because uh, nobody had really, there are some old studies that have that information, but current texts don't talk like that. So being able to publish that and develop an algorithm and then consistently teach about it. Now I've written a couple chapters and, um, and increasingly recognizes an expert in that area has been um, important to me. 
And it was important because it was also surgery. And that was one of the things I wanted to be recognized for as, as being a surgeon. That's, yeah, that's, that's extremely interesting. And I had a kind of a follow-up question with that because you, you talk a little bit about, you know, being a female urologist and kind of towing the line between, you know, gynecology, urology, and I guess technically in this field, urogyn, it kind of melds the two together a little bit. Um, I'm really curious, you know, from the progression of your training, training in a uh, historically, uh, I guess, male-dominated practice in urology, how that, um, how that went for you, and then if you envision or if you see any need for further change um, in terms of diversifying the um, urologic or even gynecologic workforce. So on, you have the experience on the other side seeing, uh, I think there's a lot of emergence of female doctors in, in OB-GYN and Eurogyn. Um, so can you maybe touch a little bit of, about the diversification or if there is even a need in, in your eyes? Well, I think that most people would probably say there's, you know how there's, um, there's the globally looking at the field and then there's my personal experience. Does that resonate with you that they, they can be very mm -hmm. different? Okay. Mm -hmm. um, my personal experience coming to Loyola was really positive. Um, I had such a wonderful role models and I think your experience also in the Department of Urology at Loyola has been really wonderful. I, I can deeply remember I'm in my 40s and I, I made some big mistakes. I mean, serious mistakes. I'll tell you about one. One was a woman who was a kidney transplant, getting a kidney transplant from her sister. And as part of the workup, uh, they had done a full workup on her, including an x-ray and some routine stuff, not a CT scan. There was a nodule on the x-ray. I was a first year medical student. I was on that team. And uh, you know everything seemed overwhelming to me. I was smart, but I also didn't know much about med. You know, I didn't know that much about medicine. I very carefully wrote in my note um, on our on our history and physical that there was a concern that there was this nodule on our X-ray. I put it in my plan that there was a nodule and that the team should see it. Somebody co-signed my note, but nobody really read it. And after they had transplanted the kidney they realized that she had this nodule, it turned out to be nothing. But, you know, my attending came up and talked to me and said, oh my God, like you knew this? I said, I did, I put it in my note. <laughs> They're like, oh my God, you gotta tell somebody for God's sake, we're all in the middle of trying to do a kidney transplant and getting the kidney and, and nobody yelled at me. You know, nobody, I mean, my, myself, uh, my shame was huge. I had that experience. Of course, you know, you make three or four mistakes like that every year. You do, even in the most intended, something you missed, uh, uh, something someone told you about once and you heard it, you thought you internalized it, and then you did it again. And each time I was treated like an adult and um, my self-mortification was much higher than anything anyone ever said. That model um, of treating me like a peer and treating me like an, the adult I was really resonated with me and it's exactly who I am in my own practice. Um, and I felt no, because of that, I, I kept feeling like people were treating me just like another person. I, I never once heard anything misogynist. I never once gave a second thought to, are they saying this to me because I'm a woman or not? Um, what was powerful to me that I already mentioned was the lack of women role models. Just seeing mm -hmm. another woman there 
mm-hmm. or um, or hearing a statement that was just ludicrous, you know, like, oh my God, that's ridiculous. You know, why, if there was another woman here, we would just looked at each other and said, that's ridiculous what you just said. But in general, I, I didn't feel like it kept me down or, or, and I can tell you that deeply, one of my biggest supporters from the minute I walked in the door was Dr. Flanagan, who told me, I'm getting you into academics. I don't know what it's going to take, but you're going to go into academics. And I kept telling him, I'm too old and I just want to practice. And eventually he was right. And he made a lot of things happen for me. So he was a very great and deep mentor. But I think there are fields where I could, you know, early on, I could just look at and say, there's no way in hell I'm going into that. Neurosurgery was one. Uh, there weren't that many women. Orthopedics, I, I couldn't. I didn't, I couldn't understand those, that just the whole personality seemed like overwhelming. All they did was talk sports. I, I, you know, I'm a good tennis player, but I couldn't go on and on with them about sports. And it seemed like it was non-ending. So there, there's some of those things that were difficult. In urology, they were pretty easygoing and funny. And that really resonated with me. And there are so many women in urology now. I was president of the Society of Women in Urology, and that was probably like six years ago. And at that time, the number of women who were in urology residency programs equaled the number of board-certified women urologists. So I have seen the field of urology completely transformed. In the field of ob which has been predominantly women for a decade at least now, there still lacks uh, women in leadership positions, um, chairs, things like that, and that's increasingly changing. And of course, there are only two women urology chairs in the United States, both very impressive women, um, you know, so I think there's room for growth there. So I'm just curious, it, it seems like in the field of urology, a lot of the female urologists tend to maybe subspecialize in female, um, like pelvic reconstructive medicine. Do you think that that's pretty standard for a lot of, maybe not standard, standard's not the right word, but pretty common for a lot of women who do go into urology to end up wanting to work in a profession where there is more more females Hmm. or do a lot of females in urology end up staying in general urology practice and working mostly with men? The majority of, of women I know in urology do not specialize in taking care of women. The majority of them, I've seen them go into all of the specialties, including erectile dysfunction, cancer. I'd say in general, my experience has not been that. It's a smaller subspecialty in urology. Now, it is true that 40% of the people who see a urologist are women. Even though we think of it as like male gynecology, women have stone disease, women have cancers, and women have incontinence, and many times healthcare, you know, primary care providers will equally refer them to urology and and gynecology. So I, and, and, and in general, I think more often urology because they see it as a bladder problem and urologists are the experts around the bladder. Because of that though, women patients will seek out a woman. So I know women who have specialized in, in urologic fields that are only men. For example, erectile dysfunction, women, don't get an erection. So if you're an erectile uh, dysfunction specialist, you'll still manage to get women on your schedule who have incontinence because they're seeking out a woman urologist and there's no other woman urologist around in that healthcare system and they'll still end up on your schedule. So one of my counsels to women when they're interviewing for uh, residency programs when I'm at Loyola and they come in and I'll pull them aside at the end and say, hey, listen, let me give you a piece of advice. Whether you think you're going to see women or not, you're going to. And one of the things I've learned about women, and it's probably true for men, I just say this to women though, is that 
you won't want to experiment on women. So go to a practice and go to a program. It's unacceptable for you to not go to a program where there's a, there's a strong um, female urology, not female urologist. Female urology is the name of incontinence doctors in urology. They're called female urologists, but they're not gendered female. They have to be board certified in, in my specialty, which is called female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. I think you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't go to one of those programs. You're not going to learn enough to take care of the women that are, that are going to see you. And um, I'll hear from them years later. That was a, such a great piece of advice because now they're in practice and they know what I'm talking about. They, they're experiencing what I had told them about. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. At what point in residency did you think about applying into a fellowship? Um, it was when I met Linda Brubaker. So I was in my third year, the second half of my third year, when I heard her speak and thought, um, oh, I, I like that. At the time, too, my field was changing. Um, what was happening is they, the only board certification in urology as a subspecialty was pediatric urology. And the, um, you know, you can become a specialist like me, female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgeon by either being an OB-GYN or being a urologist. We've trained both at Loyola. We've had urologists graduate from our programs in OB-GYNs. And, um, and so that was also, I recognize that that was a possibility. I have a quick question backing off of that. Um, you know, you, you can technically get into Eurogyn FPMRS in the two routes, like you said, through the urology residency or an OB-GYN residency. Right. Um, do you find, is there, a, like, let's say, you know, I'm, I, I want to get to, you know, where you're at eventually. Which side would you choose? How would you choose which residency to go into? And, you know, obviously you went through the, the urology aspect. Would you go through urology again? Would you choose OB-GYN over that? What kind of goes into the pros and cons of both? And, how would you counsel someone on that? Yeah, um, well, I think practically uh, some of it has to do with the competitive. I think it's more competitive to go into urology than OB-GYN. Um, I, you know, I think that the boards, what they require from you and that how the match rates and stuff are different. So I think that if you, you'll be able to self-decide which of those two are right. In general, taking care of women OB-GYNs are better trained at taking care of women. They learn about mammograms. They learn about all the cancers of women. Um, I can't imagine doing the practice I do without having partners who were an OB-GYN the same way they can't imagine doing the practice that we do without having at least one partner who was a urologist to kind of round out the field. But in general, I would say that if you're, uh, the um, understanding of women is deeper in OB-GYN, of course, because they see women. If you're somebody who likes the idea of taking care of women and doing female pelvic medicine, but also wants to take care of men, most urologists who go into female pelvic medicine uh, still take care of men. They love, you know, the relationships that you have with men are really profound. They're extraordinarily intimate. I found it to be one of the most intimate patient relationships I ever had. Men were very accepting of women physicians. They were used to seeing women and they were used to being intimate with women. So really it wasn't difficult to talk with them about sexual dysfunction or other things going on. Um, it, their initial uh, resistance was high. I can remember specifically being in a clinic at the VA where 
they asked, when I came in, they said, well, who's your boss? Can they come in? And then in came the senior fellow who was also a resident, who was also a woman. And they were like, oh my God, isn't there any man here? You know, And um, so I said, well, I could get Dr. Flanagan who was there at the time. And I said, but I wanna tell you something, I'll do the rectal exam or Dr. Flanagan can do the rectal exam. And Dr. Flanagan has a finger like a bratwurst, okay? And mine is pretty small. So, and they're like, oh, okay, okay, you just do it. And I'm like, okay, I'll do this. Yes, doctor, sorry. Dr. Flanagan come in. You know, so a little humor goes a long way with patients if you can get away with it. I'm sure there were people I could not have gotten away with that statement, but I got away with this guy. Oh, that's great. Um, and I, I, I want to be respectful of your time, but, but also I want to just briefly touch on your habit. Best. And I think, you know, you're definitely a physician that has been extremely successful in, in your career. Um, it, it, most recently, it, you, the president-elect of, you know, the American uh, Urogynecologic Society. So, um, you know, uh, extreme accomplishment. So congratulations. Uh, and just wanted to hear from you, how, how did you get to that position? Um, what led you to kind of pursue, uh, you know, that kind of leadership? And Kind of we, we touched on it on a little bit, but what uh, you know what do you really have to do in in terms of do you have to be someone that's a big grant writer to get kind of in those leadership positions? Do you have to be an excellent networker? Those kind of things. I mean, I'm sure that all goes a long way. But just curious of what you uh, what you think you need to bring to the table for those kind of things. Okay, well that's a complicated question, and you know, like all of these questions, I'm answering it only through my perspective. Um, I had a desire, I'm the first urologist to be president of that society, and that society has been around for a long time. So it's typically been led by OB-GYNs. That was a challenge to me. I really felt that it was a society that was also very open to me. So um, they recognized leadership, and I had a unique set of experiences. So early on, um, even when I was just a new attending, uh, I got on a task force and was the chair of the task force to decide whether or not they would buy a journal uh, for their for themselves and led the negotiations for that. So that was a really unique experience that I got really through Dee Fenner, who was president at the time and knew about my business background. Um, well, and how I got exposed to her was through Linda Brubaker and Kim Kenton, but also I just signed up to volunteer with AUGS on their new member committee. And then eventually I became the chair of that committee. And eventually I sat on the board for AUGS so that when this discussion came up, uh, Dee Fenner looked at me and said, you have a business background, you've negotiated contracts. I'm like, yes. And she said, why don't you head this task force? Which was really odd because I was heading it with two guys who in the next year would become chairs at two major programs, you know? Um, so I was pretty junior to both of them, but ran this part. So that gave me some good exposure. I think one of the great hallmarks of any leader, and if you want to be a great leader, what you, a great chairperson, a great leader of an organization, is you learn how to serve. Um, they're not, they're not, although they look from the outside as being egoic, they really are about service. And so you decide what things in your career you're going to um, give back. And this organization was always very open and welcome to me, gave me opportunities. And so when there was an opportunity, um, they called and asked if I would do this. I, I had uh, declined one time and then I said, come back later when my kids are just a little bit older because I want to enjoy this experience. My twins are seniors in high school and I didn't want to do it till they were going to college because I wanted to be really present through their 
final high school years and they came back and then I said yes. So I, I think some of it is about being in the right place at the right time. Some of it is being willing to serve. And I've seen really junior people in these organizations who um, have very big leadership responsibilities because they, they just got involved. And it had less to do with research or less to do with my academic achievements and more to do with my willingness to, to be part of the organization. Mm -hmm. that, that initiative is kind of what you're talking about, correct? And, and just yeah. really, you know, saying, I'm going to do a, a good job here and, and kind of having that confidence. And I think, you know, that's definitely something I, I've kind of heard, I heard that kind of along the lines, but never really actually heard it spelled out for me. So I think that's a, that's a great point to bring up too. And I have to say the three of you do that already. I mean, it, people can look from the outside and say, oh, these podcasts and doing this, but you know, as well as I do, uh, there's not every day you want to do it. And it's one more thing to worry about. And it, even if you're really good at it, it still causes anxiety, you know, and there are times you're saying, why do I even do this? I got like a million things to do. It's service. It's service. Yes, you do get um, satisfaction from it. We get satisfaction when we serve. But um, that initiative, that desire to do something, to stand up and say you'll do it, those are the hallmarks of success for most people. And it's very confusing to people who are looking just for the egoic thing because uh, that becomes very uh, transparent and things seem very unattainable and unfair when in reality, we all know it's drudgery. You know, 80% of most things is just complete freaking drudgery. And, um, and then you have that 20% of satisfaction. Those high moments really don't happen a lot. They happen enough. Uh, it, there's some other driver that's inside you that says, I wanna do this and I, I feel like I need to be here even though this is work. I, I just feel like I need to be here. Yeah. Does that make sense or does that sound squirrely? No, that sounds great. Oh, okay. <laughs> Definitely not squirrely. <laughs> okay. Maybe, so I got, maybe we can have this as our closing question. This is a, um, one I've been thinking about. And maybe before I hop into this, I, I wanted to make a comment earlier when you were sharing your story about the nodule and how you had just a very patient uh, individual who like sat with you and was very um, calm and collected with that experience. I just wanted to kind of echo uh, and almost kind of express my gratitude because I had that same experience with you. I was actually on my oh. second rotation and um, my first rotation was psychiatry. So it was kind of just kind of a, a wash of, not a wash of a rotation. It was a good rotation, but it was very different. It, I, my OB-GYN experience was literally my first experience with like yeah. presenting to physicians. And I remember um, being very intimidated because the residents had like prepped us and the fellows and they said, oh, Dr. Miller, she just cruises and you have to be, yeah. you know, be great <laughs> yeah. and just, you know, be ready to present. And I had my first patient and instead of like, what I had imagined happening, you pulled me to the side and you sat down and you just slowed me down and you very, made me feel very calm and comfortable. And I, I've never forgotten that. Um, thank you. I guess just thank you. And I, I imagine that that was almost um, uh, a hallmark of your previous experience. And so yeah. um, I think, I oh, think the, the one thing for me that um, I get a lot of good responses in the clinic, you know, people are like, I, I think what people don't get is, I really love the clinic. I, um, if it wasn't the most grounding thing I do every day is uh, connect with patients and even with the fellows and the residents, I've, that experience is probably my payback for my drudgery all week. Uh, so to me, that's not, that's actually my fun place. Like I, I look forward to the days of my clinic 
I'm really extraordinarily happy on those days. That's not an act. I really am happy. And um, I like the connections. I get most, uh, I'm, and I'm prompted whenever I see somebody nervous. I don't know what my fellows say to people, but most of the time, the first time, one or two times people are coming up to see me, they're, they're kind of like, they think I'm going to be a big dick. And I am kind of a dick, but I'm not going to be a dick that way. You know, so it's just funny. Um, thank, but thank you for saying that. It made me feel really good. Yeah. Um, so what was your question and stuff? So if you could go back and you could give advice to your 20 year old self, what would you, and this is actually like a three part question. So advice that you'd give to your 20 year old self, your 30 year old self and your 40 year old self, what would you say? Okay. Well, I, I hope, I hope, you know, I'm 60. So <laughs> really, I could really nail that one. Um, the first thing I'd say to myself at 20 is a uh, good job. You knew who you were and you knew what you wanted and you you never let go of that you know and and i have got a surprise for you that you're going to get your dream and uh, you have no idea how you're going to do it i mean when i look back at 20 what was i then i was a nurse i think i just had my bike stolen i couldn't afford a car and i was you know um cycling to the ICU and I knew I was miserable as a nurse. I, I liked what I did, but I didn't understand a lot of what was going on. And um, I didn't feel like I was in the right place. Although I liked what I did, it was, it, there were so many mixed emotions. And uh, that person uh, managed to hold on to and, and do all the next steps that made all those other things happen. So I'd kind of be in awe of that person. Uh, I wouldn't be condescending at all. I. I look back at that time in my life and think, wow, where did you get that? And I do want to tell you, I know exactly where I got it. I got it from my parents. They, um, despite this idea that, you know, they said you couldn't go to college. They, uh, every night after dinner, we had to get up and tell a joke or sing a song. My sisters are extraordinary, extraordinarily extroverted and happy people. I think they were listened to and we were always told like, you're good. You can do whatever you want. They, they just didn't have academic aspirations for us, but they, really did value who we were. And I've always carried that sense of who I am with me, no matter what I was doing. My 30-year-old self, um, I would say, stop worrying so much about money. Um, money, I now realize in the fear of money, the fear of not having money, and the anxiety that comes from not having money. Uh, when you're a child, your fears are the thing under the bed, the monster under the bed. You know, you're always taking that leap um, out of the bed, into the bed or out of the bed because something's going to grab you. Uh, when you're an adult, that materializes into the fear of money, not having enough, or I'm going to be broke, or I'm never going to get out of this. Um, you know, huge debt, this sense that, you know, other people are moving on with their lives and I'm not, I'm here in this, you know, driving up more money. And um, was this really worth it? I would say, stop uh, listening to that. That is just fear in another form and uh, hold on to your passion and you'll get through it, you know? Mm -hmm. And at 40, I'd say to myself, in about a year, you're gonna have two children. Uh, they're gonna round out the part of your life. All of the things that have made you successful to this point are, all have to be changed because uh, you now need a completely different skill set to deal with. Um, you got here, you got the thing you wanted, and now all of those skills you had to get there are not the ones that are now going to bring you uh, happiness, contentment, joy, 
uh, it's a completely different skill set. And it, you know, requires uh, being in the present moment, actually being very grateful for what you've gotten and how all the people that helped you. And you need to uh, turn around and start uh, helping others. But you don't know that uh, until you've been through those phases. Thank you. I feel like that's a perfect place to end unless anyone else has any other comments or questions they want to ask. No, I think that was, uh, that was great. Uh, and we just want to, again, say we appreciate you coming on, Dr. Miller. Um, you know, personally for me, I, I, I learned a ton uh, and, you know, truly you're definitely an inspiration to a lot of the students at uh, Loyola. And, uh, you know, I can see it in the, in the fellows as well, um, residents and fellows too. And, uh, you know, we wish you the best of luck. Uh, uh, again, congratulations on uh, your election. And um, we're really looking forward to see uh, how, how you are able to continue to move the field forward. So thank you very much. Well, I have to tell you, the future is in the three of your hands. I look forward to how you progress. And it's an exciting trip. Hold on. Okay, hold on tight. Okay. Absolutely. Take care. Thank All you right. for asking you. me to do this. Bye. Yep. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relationship is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.